Hello, I'm Kirsten O'Brien. Welcome to 16 Summers, the podcast that really only wants the answer to one simple question. If you had to choose between the childhood that you had or the one you're giving to your children, which would you pick? Right, I feel at this point you should start playing like the Hobbies music in the background because... Right. We were poop. We used to get up half an hour before we went to bed. It was an improvement, like I said, that's what you want to be of his father. So I knew his, his shortcomings weren't his fault and he loved us. I do have lots of really fond memories, but they were never they were never around kind of lavish holidays or spending money. It was all about kind of making my own fun, I guess. You totally blindsided me. I haven't talked about that for 20 years. <laughs> if we want our children to improve their lives and the lives of people around them and make it a better world than we have to do our bit. This week I'm having a chat with Jasmine Harmon, best known for presenting property programme A Place in the Sun on Channel 4. Jasmine grew up with her three siblings in East London in the late 70s and had to cope with her mum's extreme hoarding. These days she still lives on the outskirts of London with her cameraman husband and two children, seven-year-old Joy and five-year-old Albion, who's had the better upbringing though. Welcome along to 16 Summers, Jasmine. What we're going to do is I'm going to ask you this simple question and then we're going to spend the next hmm, 45 odd minutes chatting and you have to make a decision by the end. And the question... The sirens going past. Yeah, if the police don't get you. <laughs> then after me. I've got all the windows <laughs> open and the doors open. So <laughs> the question is, if you had to choose between your childhood or the childhood you're giving to your kids, which would you choose? But don't make that decision yet. Let's no, I was have say, you, don't want, you don't want to ruin the suspense, surely. No, imagine if you just answered it and then we both went, thanks, bye. (laughs) Nice talking, bye. Uh, Because your childhood is quite fascinating, mainly because we know you did a documentary about your mum back in 2011. But let's just start back there of, because I know there were masses of you, weren't there, sibling-wise. Tell me about that. We, I grew up with four of us, so that I've got, I'm the eldest of four with my same two parents, and then I've got some other half siblings as well, um, you know, who are quite a lot younger than me. It's one of them's birthday today, my little sister Maddie, she's 24 today, uh-huh. so um, there are a lot of us, but from, from my parents' relationship, there are four of us, so we, you know, we all grew up together. I'm the eldest. Um, I think I was I was around seven and a half when my sister Maria was born and um, which is the age that my daughter is now so when I sort of look back to that time and think gosh I was seven and a half that's the age Joy is now and the difference between what I was like at that age and what my lovely daughter is like is is you know it's worlds apart and I think one of the biggest things was when my mum had my sister, um, you know, she was obviously, she had four children. Um, she was only 29 <laughs> with four children. Wow. And she, um, you know, had her hands quite full, obviously. So and hold so it, on, just talk me through the, the gaps between your siblings then. There's you and she had you I, at what I, age? She, my mum had me when she was 21. So um, there's me. And then a year and a half later, my brother Johnny came along. And uh, a couple of years after that, my brother Andy came along. And then 
when Andy was four, so four years after that, by this, by this time I was seven and a half, my sister Maria was born. So there were four children in a seven and a half year uh, period. So yeah, my mum was, was, was really a young mum. By today's standards, I guess back then it probably wasn't so different in the 70s. Um, but yeah, it's really strange because, because she had her hands so full, um, at seven and a half, I would take my two brothers, Johnny and Andy, um, to nursery, like to school and to nursery. What? <laughs> On my own. So that was, you know, we, we were, well, you know, we had quite a lot of freedom, really, compared to um, my children now. I mean, they don't, they, they wouldn't, I wouldn't allow them to go anywhere on their own so they we had a lot more independence um and I was responsible enough at seven and a half to be trusted with taking you know a five-year-old or no what was he then he must have been six and four a six and four-year-old to to school and to nursery (laughs) that's extraordinary because I've got a nine-year-old and I can't imagine him taking my three-year-olds somewhere successfully that that is you say independence but you also say responsibility but to me that sounds like responsibility yeah it was both really and even you know things like um I, I mean I remember really clearly I must have been a little bit older I think I was probably about nine or ten or so um when um my dad used to drop us off at Waterloo. <laughs> my grandparents lived on the Isle of Wight. So he'd take us to Waterloo and we had the dog as well. We'd put us on the train and say to the train guard, keep an eye on them for me, please. Oh and, um, and we'd go, we'd just get out. You couldn't miss your stop because we were going all the way to Portsmouth Harbour. And then we'd get off the train at the end of the line, hop onto the ferry over to the Isle of Wight, which came into um, Ride Pierhead. And then we get on the little train and go right to the end of the line again down to Shanklin. And we'd just turn up at my grandparents' house. You know, we didn't have mobile phones or <laughs> nothing like that. But that was just, you know, we would go, we would go for the half-term holidays. And um, Are you sure you didn't actually grow up in the 1940s? <laughs> just no, it's quite weird, isn't it? But, I mean, that was just, that was just sort of normal, really at that time for us growing up in East London, you know, my parents, um, you know, they, they, they allowed us a lot of freedom and we had, you know, I actually found now, you know, you mentioned about my mum and her, um, hoarding challenges and she actually found in her house, some of my old diaries from when I was really, really little. One of them, I think I was about, it was 1981, summer 1981, I think. It was when whenever Bucks Fizz won the Eurovision Song Contest, because I wrote about that in my diary. And it was the, the year that um, Charles and Diana got married, because I wrote about watching the, the royal wedding. And reading back through that diary, it, it seems like we had such a full and idyllic um childhood because every day although at that time you know we had no money we you know had to rely on free school dinners and um school clothing vouchers and even things like we we got a free bus pass and things because all of these things were were means tested and you know we qualified for those 
And, um, you know, even though we had nothing material, really, um, we just had so much fun going to different places and visiting friends and, um, you know, just being kids, I guess. And did you, as the eldest, feel responsible for the other three? What What's your sort of relationship with your two brothers and your sister? Yeah, oh, I've, I've always felt kind of responsible for them. I guess things turned on their heads slightly when um, my sister had children. She was in her early 20s when she had her children. And I suddenly thought, wait a minute, she's overtaken me. <laughs> Okay, now, and then when I had my children much later, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm looking to her for advice and I'm looking to her for, um, you know, a helping hand or how to deal with situations with the kids and things like that. And so that, but really, I, I always felt very responsible for them, even down to things like, um, you know, I helped my, I drove my brother up to, where he was going to go to university and helped him find a place and gave him the money to put a deposit down. And, you know, I helped my sister do lots of things like, you know, when she was a teenager and she wanted to go for her first job, you know, at, at that time in my job that I did, I, 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 part of my responsibility was recruitment. And um, so I said to her, this is what they're looking for. And we went through a whole load of role play and, you know, she ended up going to the job interview, which was an open interview with hundreds of people. And she, at 14 years old, she got the job, you know. I mean, really the credit should go to her, but I always take the credit and say, I helped you get that job. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, so I always took responsibility for them. And um, what was it like growing up in East London? Because I've interviewed quite a lot of people so far and their childhood has been uh, quite rural. I think you're possibly the most sort of city person. And yet so far you seem to have done the, the, the freest stuff. Yeah, well, I don't know if it's because, um, you know, we, we kind of knew everyone around where we lived. And, you know, there, there's there's definitely a sort of, community or at least there was when I was a child growing up in East London where you know everybody knows everybody we lived in a block of flats um, where everybody knew each other you know our neighbours upstairs we call them auntie and I still call them my cousins they're not my cousins they were our neighbours but you know we were, had very close relationships with um, our community and um, it was very diverse you know at school and things like that you know it, we had a very multicultural school we had no uniform at school that was right through from sort of primary school all the way right up to secondary school and a levels and things I never wore a school uniform in my life um so it it, it was it wasn't without its challenges obviously um mainly financial challenges um, but, you know, you don't know any different, really. For me, growing up, I think it was one of the most valuable experiences to grow up in an environment where you have friends from all different corners of the world and you're exposed to different types of food and music and different languages and things like that. And, you know, although I never travelled, we never, I think I only went on an aeroplane once before I was 18 
um, which was to go to my cousin's wedding in Cyprus when I was 10. And that was the only time I'd been on an airplane um, throughout my entire childhood. So how things have changed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you made but, it for it. But yeah, so it, you know, it was, I think, really, really valuable. And, you know, even some of some of those things I try to teach to my children and they have travelled a lot. And I mean, both of, I mean, I think Albion had already been to about eight different countries before he was actually born. Um, so they're very well travelled, although we haven't travelled, of course, in the last uh, few months recently, in the last year or so. But um, but I had that exposure to different cultures and different people with, you know, who looked different. And that was all just normal to me. And um, I'm really grateful for that. And what were you had... like at school? Were you swatty? You know, you sound so far. The, the picture you're painting is that you're, you're quite, you've got your head together. Yeah, I was kind of... I think I went through different phases at school. I was pretty smart at school, but, um, well, I like to think I was one of the cool kids <laughs> when I went into <laughs> secondary school and I probably was for a, a year or two, but then it sort of got to the stage, I think when we were about sort of 13 or so, 13 or 14, where a lot of the children wanted to bunk off or wanted to go and, you know, smoke cigarettes behind the shed or whatever. And I wasn't interested in any of that. Um, so I, 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 then I sort of went out of the cool gang and became one of the sort of less cool, <laughs> geeky ones. Because <laughs> it was, yeah, for me, having, having my education was really important. And I, I think, you know, I, I went to inner city schools and I think they were brilliant and really served me well for with with my education um, in terms of, you know, education itself, but also preparation for real life. You know, being able to to mix with all different people, you know, being able to hold my own in all different sorts of situations, um, being able to make my own choices, like things like my school not having a uniform was because the school asked the the pupils to vote on whether or not they wanted a uniform. So that sort of um, democracy or autonomy was <clears throat> was always part of my life. And and what about going back to being at home? Did, did you have to share a room if there was that many of you? Yeah. Well, when my um, sister when my sister was born, she slept in my room um, in her cot, and I looked after her because I wanted her as my own baby basically she was mine as far as I was concerned and she even used to call me mummin instead of jasmine um, <laughs> and she still sometimes does actually <laughs> you know or if I write you know write her a card or something for her birthday I always sign it off mummin um so she she shared my room me and my two brothers used to share a room so they had bunk beds and um, I had a single bed all in the same room, I think because we wanted to be in the same room or maybe because we had somebody staying with us at the time. But we quite liked, you know, sharing a room. And then when we got older, we moved house when I was 11. We moved into a bigger house where we all had our own room. And that was 
a new experience where we were allowed to, you know, choose what colour walls to have in our rooms and things like that. And that was quite an exciting moment to, you know, to have a, a choice of that kind of thing. And you mentioned that um, your mum is from Cyprus and she left Cyprus under quite stressful circumstances. Is that right? Yeah, she, well, she was only very small. I think she was four, four or so when she came to the UK. Um, but my, um, my grandmother had had to leave Cyprus with her four small children um, because she had lost her husband, so he was murdered. Um, and so at the time, um, there was a very, obviously there was a connection between Cyprus and the UK. And so she came to the UK and got a job, you know, moved, she moved into Hackney, um, got a job and sent her children to school in the UK. So my mum is very, you know, she's been here for a long time, but she, she, uh, had, yeah, she, they had some very tough times you know, during my mum's childhood, obviously, from losing her father to coming to a new country to, you know, feeling um, like she didn't belong sometimes. Um, so, what yeah. It, what has happened there? Sorry, you sort of, you say the murdered thing and instantly, you, I know it's awful, but you instantly want to know, hang on, what happened there? Yeah. Well, if only we knew, I don't think... Um, anyone really knows what or why. Um, my mum was too little to really understand what was going on at the time. But um, I believe it was a, a quite a difficult political situation in Cyprus at the time because of, um, you know, lots of Cypriot people wanting independence from Britain. Um, so I don't know if it was something to do with that. I believe it was possibly something to do with that, but I don't think anybody in the family really has the answers. Anyone who was, you know, old enough to remember at the time has passed away now. So, but whatever happened from my mum's point of view as a little girl, all she knew was that she lost her dad and that then they had to come to move to, to another country. So my, my yaya, my grandmother moved as a young widow with four small children to a country where she didn't speak the language. And she, you know, she just made it work. She made it happen. I'm sort of dwelling, going backwards on this because it impacted your mum, I think you've now established in a way that went on to impact you. And by that, I'm talking about her hoarding, which... Yeah. Do you, is it the case that what happened to your mum with her dad triggered her hoarding? Is that fair to say or not? I mean, I think that's that was possibly the beginning of it. Um, I I think she believes that that had a that had a big um, that had a big impact on her, and that because having things, precious things, um, that she could keep safe you know, made her feel good. It's something that she did more and, you know, felt that... That's not to say that had had that not happened with her dad, there may have been something else that might have triggered it. It may be something that she... that would have happened through any kind of trauma. Um, but I think for my mum, she believes that, you know, that was the first trigger. 
and so that she wanted to to have things that she could keep safe uh, because you know she wasn't able to keep her dad safe and and so you know for a lot of people who do have hoarding behavior it's um it's like a coping mechanism or a safety blanket or something to surround themselves with things so that they are um safe you know and that they feel that it, it sort of protects them in some for some people i mean it's not the same for everybody of course but yeah that's that's why i set up the website help for hoarders.co.uk because there are so many people who are having issues similar to my mother's um that, you know that don't maybe talk to anyone about it that don't realize that it might be a mental health um issue for them feel like it might be you know that just a flaw in their personality or that they're just lazy or they're just incapable of you know keeping a tidy house or whatever it might be but actually it's it's quite a serious condition and it can it can be triggered by a trauma or a loss um which is quite usual it can also be triggered by um a lack of things so if you're somebody who's never had much in sort of in the way of material things um you may not want to get rid of stuff that could still be useful you may not want to want to um throw something out that could potentially be reused or repaired or you know donated or something like that and so i think that has a part of it as well and that's something that i've definitely taken from my mum and my kids too they don't you know they like to um recycle reuse things <laughs> make things out of old junk <laughs> i'm sure yes. many parents have uh, you know have eyes have bulged when their kids come home with uh, their creations that are made out of old uh, cardboard boxes and yeah. <laughs> toilet it, it really well, interests it resonates with me i'm not a hoarder on any level but when my mum died, I was suddenly aware that I had a finite amount of stuff from her. You know, I was never going to get another birthday gift, another Christmas gift. And so everything I had left literally at that point in 1999 has become mm. like cherished. You know, even like I had a half full bottle of Body Shop strawberry bath gel, which you can imagine you know 20 years on the shape that's in now but I I can't get rid of it Um, and that for me I've come to terms with that and it's cool and it's something my husband now every time we come to certain things and he's like can we throw this away and I'm like it's a mum thing okay you know it's non-negotiable I think that um we're all we're all on that sort of spectrum of the things that we choose to keep um and the things that we choose to let go of and some people choose to let go of everything um and you know if, if somebody was to say oh that's the the last card that I received from someone who's now passed away and they just chucked it out without a thought, we would think that was probably a bit weird um, or a bit cold. Um, So I think we're all, you know, we all have a balance. I definitely keep things for sentimental reasons, you know, things from my my own childhood, things from my kids, you know, being small, um, things that are meaningful. And I think everyone can pretty much, everyone can relate to that. But it's when it gets to things that you, you start to attach meaning or, um, you know, feelings to something that for most people, well, that's just something that you've 
bought in a charity shop. It doesn't really have a meaning other than that which you have attributed to it. And that, I think, is when it can get to the level where you think, well, everything's got a story behind it and everything's got meaning behind it. And that's when it makes it very difficult to let go of things. And I think that's definitely the case for my mum and for other people who hoard. It's not to say there's not, you know, something to be learned from wanting to recycle, reuse, um, save things, repair things. I think we can all learn something from that. But I think, you know, having the right balance just means you can live live a life unencumbered, which at the moment my mum is unable to do because her house is so full of stuff still. Right. Um, and and how was that when you were growing up? When were you first aware of, oh, hang on, our house is full of stuff and my mate's houses aren't? Yeah, I think, I, I think the first time I became aware of it was when I was about seven. And um, we had a social worker come around and she was come around to help my mum with, there was a huge mountain of clothes piled up um, in one room. And I remember it because it was a friend of mine in my class. It was her mother. And I thought, this is really embarrassing. Um, And then it turned into an argument, whereas my mum didn't want to do things the way that the social worker wanted her to do them. And, uh, yeah, so that was the first time I think I became aware of it. But I don't think it was that bad then. I think it got progressively worse. And when I was sort of in my late teens, early 20s, I became really, really, really conscious of it and embarrassed and ashamed and didn't want anyone to come around, didn't ever let anyone come around to my house. Um, Had lots and lots and lots of arguments, you know, with my mum because of wanting to change the way that we lived. Um, Not really understanding at that time that she wasn't doing it on purpose, she couldn't really help it and that it was a mental health condition. But I don't think anyone at that stage knew that it was a mental health health condition, whereas now it is recognised, hoarding disorder is recognised. So how did it look in your house then, you know, stuff-wise? Can you explain what it looked like? Well, I think sort of growing, going from, you know, early, early childhood, it looked probably mostly normal, but with quite a bit of clutter around or things not really put away properly. Or if you'd open a cupboard, it would be all just crammed full of stuff um, that had been shoved in there just to tidy up. And then I'd say in my sort of teens, it looked a lot worse. My early 20s, it was almost impenetrable. Some of the rooms were unusable. Um, you know, with just stuff piled up everywhere, either in boxes or bags or loose. Um, Some of the rooms we couldn't use at all because they were so full, you know, because some of the things that my mum collected were things like furniture. And then so furniture would go on top of other furniture, which would then, you know, have other stuff put around it or on top of it and so it ended up you couldn't you know you could barely open the door there were things all piled up the stairs and when my yaya died my mum's mum a lot of her stuff then you know I guess similarly to to when you lost your mum my mum didn't want to let go of her mother's stuff and so that all came into the house as well and you know it just filled up and filled up and filled up and we've cleared it a few times 
but I think that um, clearing someone who has hoarding disorders possessions away can be really dangerous and very damaging to their mental health and also it doesn't solve the problem because actually the problem is not the stuff the problem is whatever's driving them or compelling them to collect the stuff in the first place Mm. unless you resolve that underlying problem it usually comes back and um, so my mum's having um, therapy mindfulness at the moment and she, she that seems to be doing really really great things for her so she feels in a good place and how was your dad reacting to that at the time was he just like this is the way it is how did that work no my dad wasn't my dad um was always trying to clear up right so so that's so for him that wasn't you know that wasn't the way he wanted to live either but my parents separated when I was in my late teens and um so then you know then mum didn't have um him there trying to <laughs> stop her from bringing stuff in again so you know that's probably a time when it did go from being livable to being you know much much worse and in the way that I'm loving your personality by the way I think you need to do like workshops or something if you don't already life workshops <laughs> um in the way that you are quite sort of tackily about stuff how were your siblings has it affected them are any of them showing those tendencies or are you all like our house are all minimalists we don't have anything in ours how how has it worked out for the rest of them we're all different we all reacted to it differently I think I probably had the the strongest reaction of being embarrassed and being ashamed um I don't think the others were quite as uh horrified by the whole thing as I was um, but we all, you know, we all have, none of us ha- are hoarders. We all have a tendency to want to not throw things away that could be valuable to someone else or that someone else could use. And I think that's something that positive that we can all take from it. Um, I I wouldn't call myself minimalist, but I do like everything to be put away and I don't, I don't form strong attachments with material possessions really for any reason unless it's something that you know like for example my kids clothes I've given them all away except for maybe one or two special items so I'm not completely ruthless (laughs) with stuff but I like to you know I wouldn't just chuck it all out I would like to give the stuff to someone else who I can use it and I I get pleasure out of that so if I say yep to one of uh, my friends who's got a younger child I've got I've got some lovely clothes for you that actually gives me pleasure and satisfaction to be able to get rid of those things and I think we're all a little bit like that so none of us want none of us are wasteful um but we're all you know quite mindful of wanting to um make use of things but at the same time not be overrun with things and you said that you were embarrassed at the time to show people into your house. Did you talk to mates about it? And I'm thinking about Never. maybe when you Never. got your first boyfriend. Oh, Never. really? What no. about like first boyfriend or something? Never. I mean, I, I did once. I mean, I had my first boyfriend and he, he or the one I considered to be my first boyfriend anyway. <laughs> my first boyfriend was a whole different story. He was a complete weirdo. Anyway, but my other first boyfriend... <laughs> <laughs> Sounds very cryptic now. But my first boyfriend, um, when we went on our first date, my mum dropped me off at 
the cinema and we went to see a movie and then his mum had invited me to go round to their house for dinner. So um, I went round for dinner and my mum came to pick me up afterwards and we had a lovely time. And then he said, oh, I'll come round to your house next time. And I just remember, like, I don't know, it must have shown on my face, but I thought, no, this can't, this can't be happening. And then I had to somehow, I was so upset and I, I spoke to my mum and I thought, how am I going to explain this? Because I really like him, but I can't invite him round to our house. And I was really tearful and upset. And then I made my mum call him. <laughs> I made her call him to explain why he couldn't come round to our house. And, and what was uh, the explanation? Because it was too unti- It was just too messy. We couldn't do it. And then, but my mum felt really bad, and she promised me that we would get the house straightened out and that um, we would be able to invite him round sometime. And and we did, and he did come round once and I made a lovely dinner for all, for all of us, for the whole family. We all had dinner together. And, um, you know, I was only 16. But, you know, so we, we weren't going out to restaurants or anything like that because we were just kids, really. But, yeah, we all had a lovely dinner together. All I'm thinking about that, if I got that phone call from someone, which is awful, but if somebody said you can't come around, it's too messy, you'd be going, well, how messy? All they want to do now is, I mean, how messy can it be? Do you know what I mean? There must have been a certain intrigue about your life, about the situation. I think think he probably knew from, from my wailing and crying and how upset I was about it that, um, it wasn't, you know, funny. It wasn't a joke. It was, you know, really, really upsetting for me. Um, and so he, you know, he was very respectful and came around when he was invited, but, but you know, didn't push it, didn't push it. And that was, I appreciated that. And because um, I couldn't talk about it. It was, it was so, so shameful in my mind that um, I didn't talk about it to my closest friends, to my boyfriend, to anyone it was too awful and even when I started working on a place in the sun you know it was like in the back of my mind what if somebody ever found out about my mum's house I was terrified and how did people find out was that you bringing it to the forefront deciding to to talk about it in a documentary it was, yeah. And I think that was, that was in a way, it was after, you know, I moved out of home, I had my own place, I met my, my husband. And, um, you know, I, I had my independence, and I had a bit of perspective then, to understand that it wasn't my fault, and it wasn't my responsibility, and I didn't have to feel guilty or ashamed about it. But also that my mum wasn't doing it deliberately. And I think, you know, I began to be aware that it was a mental health problem. This was before um, the DSM or the World Health Organization or any other, you know, authoritative bodies had recognized it as such. But I began to realize that that it was um, more than just slovenliness. (laughs) It was really serious. And so then I, I thought, well, people shouldn't have to 
live in fear of this being found out and people shouldn't have to hide. And actually, maybe, I mean, my my main um, reason for wanting to do the documentary was still at that time to clear the house. That was all I really wanted to do. But in doing that, opened up this whole dialogue with people about um, about hoarding disorder. And we thought we were the only ones. But then we've now discovered that there are millions of people who think they are the only ones. So, you know, it's it's been really freeing, really liberating for my mum, for me, for the whole family to be able to talk about it and say that, well, there is no, there is, shouldn't be any shame in this. You know, actually, it's a medically recognised condition and there's not a great deal of help out there. And there's no sort of effective, proven treatment programme yet, although there are lots of things that you can do to to help the situation. But, you know, it's none of, none of it's fail-safe. It's very much dependent, like most mental illnesses, on um, the person and on the support that they receive. Would you say that's the worst part of your childhood then? Definitely. That was, you know, from my te- my teens, really, that was sort of the overriding thing that upset me and that um, I argued with my mum about. Um, my younger childhood was lovely and, I, you know, I really feel that despite the fact that, you know, we didn't have any, we didn't have a lot and we didn't, we weren't spoiled, we never tra- went on holidays, you know, we didn't travel, we didn't do any um, of the things that my children are lucky enough to do nowadays. Um, you know, we, I still have really happy memories from my childhood. Um, you know, things, just when you, when I think back to it, and I think, you know, I remember wanting to have a speak and spell and I asked, like, for a few years <laughs> running, could I get one speak and spell for Christmas or for my birthday or whatever? And I never got one. Or, or I also had asked for a Wonder Woman costume and I never got one. Whereas nowadays, my kids, if they ask for something, you know, I try to say to them, well, if it's not your birthday and it's not Christmas, why am I going to get this for you? You have to save up and, and get it for yourself. You have to save up some money. Um, or you have to do something, you know, when we were homeschooling each week, we had a star chart and, you know, if they had got up, got a hundred stars or more, then I would give them like a credit towards something that they wanted. So we had this sort of system going that they had to do something to get it because, you know, they probably are a bit spoiled. They're definitely more spoiled than I was at their age because they, um, have, you know, most things that they could possibly, any child could possibly want in life. But I am quite nostalgic when I look back to my life and think, you know, we didn't have this sort of culture of looking at screens all the time, Um, you know, tablets or computers or phones or gadgets or even for school, you know, they're looking at iPads in school all the time. And when we were doing homeschooling, it was all on a screen. Um, I, I am quite nostalgic about that time, you know, being able to do things like go to the library and, um, 
look in an encyclopedia and things like that. The old-fashioned way. Yeah. So you've got Joy, your eldest, and you've got Albion. Coming from a big family, I'm always interested, you quite often, people want to replicate that for for their families. Was that something you, you did or didn't want or were aware of? I would have loved, my dream was to have four, two girls and two boys, which is what I grew up with. Um, But, you know, life had different ideas. And um, when my husband and I wanted to have children, we found it really a struggle. And we we ended up having IVF um, with Joy and Albion. And I, when we did it, um, we'd been trying for years and we ended up, you know, having joy on our very first cycle so I was really lucky to get pregnant the first time and we had another three embryos which we froze and so I thought that's it then there's there's this one and there's three in the freezer (laughs) but as it turns out only one of those other three came to be and that's Albion and um you know I think when we had two children we weren't really desperate to have more, um, although I would have liked to. And so we, we decided we wouldn't go for any more IVF. I think we were very lucky to have two children from one cycle of IVF anyway, because obviously lots of people aren't successful on their first try or might take them lots of goes. Um, so, yeah, it's, it would have been nice to have more, but I'm very happy with the, my two children that I've got. Yes. And, uh, I think I'm a bit too old now to <laughs> not I mean, we do have children much older. My mum, when I think she was 21 when she had me and I was nearly 38 when Joy was born. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a whole generation apart. I'm the same as you in that I had Fox, my eldest, at 39 and then tons and tons and tons of IVF and we ended up with twins. And now in a strange sort of trying to see the positives, I at 49 I'm now like god well I'm sort of glad I'm the age I am because I never thought I'd say it but if I was younger I would keep going again and again I I didn't think I'd be that person but now I'm like the twins are three and I'm like oh I would happily have another baby now but obviously I can't given everything we've been through so I've tried to flip that into a positive now of it's all right my age has prevented that which is life telling me no (laughs) exactly but the weird thing is you know I remember my my grandmother, my paternal grandmother, my nanny Beryl, I think she was only 42 when I was born, her first grandchild. Wow. <gasps> so, that, you know, that also is a weird um, thing. I remember, yes. you know, thinking when I got to that age, oh, I was, nanny was a grandparent, you know, by the time, and I've got a two-year-old. Oh my a two-year-old word. and a four-year-old. So, you know, it's a whole generation that's been skipped, really. But, I mean, I, I personally wouldn't change it just because, for, you know, everything happens for a reason. I wasn't ready to have children when I was 21. Definitely not. No. And so. in terms of that Cyprus side of things, how much do you uh, – are you in, in connected to that and the kids are connected to that as, the, as their heritage, as it were? Um, probably not as much as I would like, actually. Um, we did spend three weeks in Cyprus last summer in between lockdowns. I was working and my mum came out with 
the kids and my husband came out as well. And um, I think that was the first time that I'd been to Cyprus with them when they were old enough to understand that this is where grandma comes from. And they heard her speaking to other people in Greek and um, they looked at the alphabet and we got a couple of little books and things like that. So, yeah, it's something that I, I, I would like to build on with them. You know, they are very well travelled and they do, um, you know, like to to be involved, like to try to, to learn to say things in different languages and to try different foods. They're not always successful, you know, what it's like with kids when you try and get them to eat something different, but at least they try. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that's really important to me as they grow up to be even more connected with our Cypriot heritage. And in terms of your parenting style, I have particular fascination to this because my husband's a director and I would love to, I mean, I'd love your job, basically, Jasmine. I would think that was fabulous, <laughs> but I couldn't fit in those gorgeous dresses. But, um, you know, how, how, do you, <laughs> how do you make that work, though? You know, are you away for them for a long time or how, how does it play out when, when you're that working, travelling mum? Well, I've been really lucky with my work because since both of the children were born, right throughout both my pregnancies and when the children were babies, um, I they travelled with me. So they always travelled with me right up until um, school, until education became compulsory and I couldn't <laughs> take them with me anymore all the time. So now I limit what I do in terms of my um, the shoots that I do. I do usually... One week is the maximum that I'll spend away from the children. And the rest of the shoots that I do, you know, if it's during school holidays, I'll take them with me. And, you know, obviously I haven't been working this year yet. We're hopeful that we might be able to go back to filming overseas soon. Um, but, yeah, I've been a stay-at-home mum for the last few months because... You know, we haven't been able to go overseas and film. We've got lots and lots and lots of episodes to make. So we'll hopefully be getting back to it soon. But between me and John, my husband, we try and work our schedules around so that one of us is always here. And what kind of parent are you? Are you strict? Are you shouty? Oh. Are you seething? <laughs> what are you? I can be shouty at times. I try not to be... Um, I try not to be, in fact, you know, it, as any parent knows, it's, you know, you're never perfect. You never get it right all the time. Um, I like to give my children as much autonomy as they can. But, you know, if it's sometimes it doesn't work out the way I hope it would, you know, but they are, they're great kids. They, um, you know, they usually make good choices with things. And, you know, if I say to them, are you going to brush your teeth or whatever it might be that we're having a standoff about? Come on, you can do it. You can brush your teeth. Show me how independent you are and trying to encourage them. And then it, they just ignore me. And then in the end, I go, OK, don't worry about brushing your teeth. Just keep your teeth dirty. That's no problem. And they go, no, no, no. <laughs> sometimes. sometimes. <laughs> I say, oh, no, you finished your breakfast now. Give me your plates. We've got to leave the school. Oh, no, 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 they'll, they'll eat it all of a sudden. So, you know, sometimes those things, that sort of reverse psychology works, but not always. Yeah. But no, I, 
I try to be, um, ask them questions, let them have their say, you know. I think I found it very, very difficult during lockdown, homeschooling, um, and I found myself being not being the parent I wanted to be because I was so overwhelmed and frustrated and felt so sort of um, unprepared, I guess. I had, you know, I had been, I had all my dates booked in for work and been going away and then had that rug pulled out from underneath me and suddenly became a, a teacher with a very low salary. Well, <laughs> let's face it, with no salary. Um, and it was... I found it really, really, really difficult to have nothing else going on in my life apart from staying at home and homeschooling. And um, I felt quite sort of frustrated and down about it. And I think that that just is never a good place to be in when you're trying to motivate young children to do something. So I was really happy when they went back to school and I feel like I've got back to being a bit more the mum that I want to be who who listens and who encourages and who um, guides my children um, to help them navigate this whole situation that we find ourselves in at the moment, which is hard for them as well. I think we forget, we think, well, kids are so adaptable. I think we forget how, you know, these changing boundaries all the time, they don't get it. Like, why can't we go and visit our friends and have a play date or why can't so-and-so come over for a sleepover and stuff like that and it's about giving them enough information but not scaring them I think. It's interesting what you said about the way you reacted to suddenly being their teacher and all that because I, I quite often think there's there's sort of two types of mum in a way there's there's one that their children are born and they're like oh this is it now this is my life's work and suddenly this is my purpose or there's mums maybe certainly like I was or like it sounds you are that go well actually I'm really proud of what I do and I love what I do and that's how I identify and now you guys have just got to sort of fit into that. Yeah, I really felt like I was losing my identity. But, um, you know, my children are the most important thing to me in my life. And everything else goes on the back burner. But I think for our own, you know, our own um, mental well-being and our own identity, we, you know, you ha- you, I'd certainly need more than children alone. Like there needs to be something else because I am not just a mum, I am lots of other things to lots of other people as well. And not, you know, mostly to myself, you know, my kids are so important. I love them to bits. I I mean, I wouldn't change anything at all. But, you know, the other, you know, I went, I had a job the other day, I had to go to down to Devon overnight in a hotel. Well, I've never been so excited (laughs) to go to a hotel on my own. Uh, You know, to have a good night's sleep, because... I'm sure that, um, you know, that as a parent, or certainly for me, I feel like I, I'm always, I'm never quite fully in a deep sleep because I'm always just got half an ear open to, to listen out for the kids or, or something. So actually being in a hotel on my own, I was compl- I had the best sleep I've had in the <laughs> <completely> ages. <Yeah. laughs> uh, do you have a lowest parenting moment? Oh, let me think. I'm sure I do. Um, 
I think it's got. It would have been during this last lockdown during homeschooling, and I think um, there was one day where I was, you know, I was probably hormonal as well. I don't even know, but I felt so down and so incapable of, you know, inspiring them to do their homeschooling that I was trying to get them to do. And I, I just burst into tears and I said, I'm going to go and lie down for a minute. And I lay on the sofa under a blanket and they both suddenly sat down quietly and started doing something. And I sort of just dozed off. I think I was exhausted. <laughs> and then when I, then they woke me up and they had, and they had like a glass of water and a biscuit or something, I think it was a biscuit that they'd brought over for me and a little letter that they'd written to me saying how that much they loved me and things like that. And so that really low point where I thought, I just can't cope with this anymore. <laughs> I'm just going to leave them to do whatever they want. They can go feral, I don't care. Um, actually turned into a really nice moment. And it was like a, a lesson for them as well as I think for me that, you know, our parents are vulnerable. Parents aren't, you know, we're not, we don't always know everything and we don't always behave in the, in the right way that we should. And, um, you know, I think we, I try to be as open as possible to learning from my children as well as teaching my children. I had a similar thing recently. Mark, my husband had been away for a month and I had a hell day with the kids and it was the day of the Duke of Edinburgh's funeral. And I just said, to him, just leave me in here for a second. And I had it on because I'd worked that morning as part of it and then come home and I was I wanted to see it. And the kids all sort of drifted in one by one and Fox just piped up. They sort of just quietly sat on the sofa and watched and Fox went, Mum, just to be clear, are you crying because of this old man or because of us? <laughs> and I went, both. <laughs> and it was a similar yeah. sort of thing of I think it was quite surprising to see me in in a minor meltdown um in terms of your childhood we talked uh, the worst bits what would you say your best bit of your childhood was um I mean the thing that jumps to my mind first of all is when my sister was born you know, she was a gift. It was like it was like this wonderful gift that um, I all I wanted. I had two younger brothers. All I wanted was a little sister. And when she was born, it was amazing. I remember my dad woke me up in the middle of the night to say to tell me that uh, the baby was born. And it was a little girl, and I, I went to sleep so happy that night. And we also had, you know, this tradition, I guess, of always going down to the Isle of Wight. Um, during half-term holidays, my grandparents had a guest house um, on the island in Shanklin. And so we wouldn't, we couldn't go in the summer because they were always full of visitors, but we used to go in the half-terms in um, February and October. And that was really special. And I've taken my kids back to the Isle of Wight and I said to them, oh, that little, you know, walking down Shanklin, Chine, you see that little tiny hut there in the woods, that's where the witch lives. And, you know, I've sort of recreated the the childhood memories that I had and the sort of imagination and the fun that we had for my kids and, you know, going down to the beach and going to the arcades and um, all of that stuff. That That's really, really happy times for me. And in terms of where your kids are now, are they being brought up in, in London as well, like you did? 
Yeah, we're sort of more on the outskirts of London. I was, you know, when I grew up, I was sort of fairly central East London. Um, but yeah, so we we where we are now is still fairly diverse. It's still, you know, it's not like being in inner city. You know, we're in the suburbs, so it is a bit different. But you know. For them going into, they they did go into London actually one day not that long ago when things started opening up a little bit again and they went to see the monument, you know, because they'd been learning about Fire of London at school. They went in to see that and they went to Trafalgar Square and walked around and ended up in Hamleys. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, danger. Yeah, so they, you know, for them, I think there are very few... There probably are some similarities in the in some things, but we have a very different life. My children have a very different life to the life I had in terms of, um, you know, just in terms of, I guess, they don't have the sort of stress that we had when I was little around money. Not that we've got loads of money or anything now, but we're okay. We're comfortable. We, you know, we we can afford to put shoes on their feet and things like that. Which at times, when I was little, that wasn't possible. We had to have school clothing vouchers and things like that, and secondhand clothes and things. And I'm I'm quite happy to let my kids have hand me downs. You know, I'm not I'm not fussy about those kind of things. But um, yeah, it's a different it's a different life, really. Well, I've given up trying to predict which way people are going to go on this. So I will simply just ask you the question. Would you rather have the childhood you had or the one you're giving to your kids? There are there are lots of um, pros and lots of cons. So there's lots of fours and against for both of them, I would say. But on balance, I would rather have the childhood that I'm giving to my kids. <laughs> and that's not to say that I didn't have you know lots of lovely times in my childhood which I did but um I you know I and I was very happy in my early childhood things changed a lot in my teens but I do you know I think me at the age that my children are now I would have loved their life I'm interested in just how much of that is to do with travel, actually, because the whole reason I dreamt this podcast up is because I grew up abroad in places like Singapore and Kuwait, and and I realised I was never going to give my kids that. Um, How much of the fact that you travel and and they get to see so much of the world is caught up in that answer? I think a lot. I think, yeah, a lot of it. I mean, some of the things I learned from my life, you know, are things that they will, will probably never um experience but you know that it's so important to me and I you know when I've I didn't travel I'd only been on a plane once before I was 18 and then I got the bug and I wanted to travel you know I think when I was 18 I went to Thailand for a month um and that just gave me itchy feet and I wanted to travel as much as possible after that and I moved to Portugal in my sort of early to mid 20s and living overseas really gave me uh, a whole different perspective and I really want my children to have that and I think yeah I think there's a big part of it that um, 
you know, that's embedded in that being able to travel. I want them to have the opportunities to do that, that I didn't have um, and to appreciate it. I think that's sometimes the hard thing is when you give them everything, they don't appreciate it. <laughs> mm. Whereas I appreciated it because I'd never had it. So, I, you know, it's a hard question to answer, but I think if I go back to me, aged seven, you know, if somebody had said to me, right, you know, you've got, um, you've got the option of going on a, a, an overseas holiday, I would have been beside myself with glee or even things like, you know, we didn't have a garden when we were growing up in my young childhood, we lived in a flat, you know, even to have things like playing in the garden on the trampoline, just simple things like that would have been, I would have loved it. You know, those are things that my children take for granted. They have every day and they don't, they don't probably envisage that there are children out there that aren't as lucky as they are in that sort of way. So... That's been a really interesting chat. Thank you so much. And if there's any um, gaps in your girl gang, please, can I apply? <laughs> you sound like a brilliant mate to have on board. Thank you so oh, much you. for your time. Nice. Hey, thank you for having me. It's really great. I hope it turns out well. <laughs> You've been listening to 16 Summers. Apparently that's how many summers we get to hang out with our kids before we're too uncool or they cost too much to take on holiday or something. Anyway, I'm Kirsten O'Brien. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe in the usual way and we're always happy to hear your comments. And if you've been affected by anything you've heard in this podcast, Jasmine set up helpforhoarders.co.uk where you can get further information and help. 